0: The six thirty Chad afternoon news with Jaylen Nye and Andrew Gross weekdays at two on six thirty Chad.
1: Two thirty four on the six thirty Chad afternoon news as. uh... We were talking about off the top of the show, Jasper National Park, uh, looking a lot different than it used to. It's uh, once lush and green trees dying and turning orange thanks to something called the mountain pine beetle. To explain what's going on, we're joined now by Jasper National Park Resource Conservation Manager, David Argument. David, thanks for taking the time to talk with us. Oh, my pleasure. So I saw pictures of this uh, about a week ago. Actually, Jalen and I showed them to me. Uh, I I assumed that it was, to be honest with you, I assumed that it had been uh, uh, fire retardant that had been dropped on the trees, or I I really was trying to explain what I was looking at, but what was I looking at?
2: So what you're seeing is the effects of the uh, outbreak we're currently suffering from of the mountain pine beetle in our... Uh, pine forest here. This is confined, of course, just to the, the pine forest, which is a dominant tree type in the valley bottoms and very much in in the viewer's eye when they travel through, uh, through Jasper.
1: And where has the pine beetle been up until now? How long since it was introduced into the province of Alberta, by your estimates?
2: Uh, well, h- historically, the beetle was confined to parts of the U.S. and the West and, and Central and Northern British Columbia, but conditions have aligned over the last few decades for it to, uh, to reach the current epidemic, uh, you know, warmer dry summers that make the trees more susceptible and, and increasingly warm uh, weather in the winter, or at least uh, an absence of the cold snaps we used to have.
1: So did they migrate here though, or you know, as we enter a province you see those signs that say not to bring firewood in. I mean, do we have any idea how they were introduced to Alberta?
2: Yeah, no, they weren't actually actively introduced by by people in that sense. It's not a, a movement of firewood uh, kind of situation. They crept across the divide from from B.C., uh, starting from Robson Provincial Park into Jasper back in you know the very late 1990s. We first saw the, a few individual trees, and then as the outbreak in B.C. that some people may have heard about uh, reached epidemic proportions, it jumped over in northern Alberta. Uh, It came down from the north from Grand Prairie and has been coming over greater numbers from the BC side uh, via Robson Provincial Park here into Jasper.
0: David, can you explain the process of how the mountain pine beetle causes this impact on the forest?
2: Yeah, sure. So uh, typically, I mean, the beetle is an endemic North American insect, and when one beetle attacks a tree, the female will bore into the bark uh, and start... um, Boring out a chamber under the bark and lay her eggs, and a male will follow her in, and, and then the larvae start to burrow under the bark around the tree, effectively girdling the tree or cutting off the nutrient and moisture flow up and down the tree trunk, uh, which effectively kills the tree. And the needles will turn red uh, as they as they lose that moisture and nutrient flow. Um, where there's epidemic proportions like this and we have multiple beetles attacking individual trees that just, you know, the trees can't withstand that and and they they fall uh, very quickly to that. You you
1: mentioned a moment ago uh, some of the ways that uh, this beetle's stopped naturally, uh, cold winters, uh, that sort of thing. Um, Those things, those conditions haven't been... um, haven't been relevant in Alberta the last couple of years, so I would assume that helped the spread of these. But is there a man-made way to stop these?
2: Well, I would say the answer to that is no. (laughs) I mean, this is a naturally occurring insect. It's reached epidemic proportions. There are measures that are being put in place uh, in various jurisdictions to try to slow or control the spread. Uh, Jasper spent a fair bit of time and effort in the early 2000s uh, removing individual infected trees, trying to stop the spread. Uh, but at this point, in a situation like we're facing in Jasper, there's there's no way that we can actually manage the spread of the beetle uh, at this point. What we're focused on now is addressing uh, the elevated fire risk that comes along with, uh, with these dead forests. You know,
1: it, that's an interesting... I don't want to say aside to the story, that's an important part of the story, because what it's leaving behind is these dry, dead trees, which becomes great kindling for fire. In in a way, uh, nature's kind of worked against us a little bit, because Alberta has been very diligent in preventing fires, but fires are one of the ways you control this beetle, isn't it?
2: Yeah, uh, fire on the landscape is a great way to break up these uh, stands of forest that are just an unbroken sort of blanket of food in front of the beetle epidemic. So we have been trying to put prescribed fire back on the landscape in parks for about 30 years to help break up the forest and provide a little more diversity. Uh, But some of our past forest management practices, as you mentioned, have led to this situation we are in now where we have large expanses of forest that we have protected from fire that have now fallen prey to the beetle and now uh, give us an elevated fire risk uh, concern to manage.
0: Now, David, this has been happening, you said, for about 20 years now. How quickly is this issue spreading? I mean, obviously they didn't just come in and ruin the entire park, but the more they harvest themselves in the park, they they must be doubling their impact or maybe tripling their impact over the span of a few short years?
2: Yeah, you've actually uh, hit it just about right there. Over the last three or four years, we've seen a doubling each year in the area impacted by the pine beetle in Jasper. So the last surveys from 2017, uh, we are now at about 93,000 hectares um, of pine forests that are impacted by the beetle. It's important, of course, to remember that pine is not the only tree occurring in Jasper. We do have large areas of other forest types, spruce and aspen and things like that. So this is uh confined to our pine forest uh white bark pine are also impacted by this but largely it's in the um uh in the lodgepole pine forest
1: did did you say 93,000 heca- hectares
2: uh, that's correct that oh. sounds alarming that's correct
1: that's an alarmingly large number how many are there total
2: of uh, pine dominated uh forest in Jasper we're at about 210,000 hectares uh largely in the valley bottoms um but yeah, so we're, we're almost You're at almost half, at point half. Of, uh, of these pine dominated
1: stands. So, Dave, uh, David, sorry, if uh, winter weather knocks them out, fires knock them out, but neither of those things have happened, as you said earlier, there's not really a man made solution to this. Um, I'm concerned. I mean, I, so, are you working on a solution, or are we just going to lose the rest of those trees?
2: It's important also to recognize that, that not all pine trees are falling prey to this. Uh, the trees of around 40 to 60 years or older are particularly susceptible to this beetle. Uh, trees in drought conditions, so in drier environments, become more susceptible. Some trees are naturally resistant. Younger trees are, are resistant and are surviving fine. So any of these stands where you see that that red On the landscape, if you were to walk through there and walk through the understory, you would see surviving young trees that are that are just starting out, you know, two to four meters tall in the understory, uh, that will not fall prey to the beetle. So as we lose those adult trees, they will be replaced over time with uh, a with a regenerating forest.
0: Now, David, talking about the thousands and thousands of hectares, if a fire were to break out, what would the response be like, and what could the potential impact be?
2: Uh, well, let me talk, yeah, I can talk a little bit about fire management and parks. I mean, we, we've been preparing and working on fire management in national parks since, since establishment. So we're going back 100 years. We've been very effective at putting out fires. More recently, we've been focusing on things like uh, active fire smarting around the community. Uh, for the last 15 years or so, we've treated more than 1,000 hectares of forest in the vicinity of the communities and the big population centers uh, like the large campgrounds here to make sure that we've thinned the canopy and to give our fire experts uh, a better um, position to combat fire uh, if if it does break out. So we have resources on hand in, in our mountain parks all summer long. We keep an a, a initial attack crew here in Jasper, uh, fire dedicated helicopters on standby whenever we're in high to extreme fire danger, uh, so we have resources on hand for the initial attack as soon as a smoke uh, appears. Uh, and then we're part of a broader uh, national fire community uh, where we can call on resources from a whole variety of other players in the, in the wildfire community to bring resources into the park. And, you know, as an example, right now we have resources that are on export to deal with some of the fires in Quebec because they're in a, in a serious fire situation in Quebec. So we are part of that larger community. And we take that role very seriously. We spend a lot of time and effort and resources on fire preparedness around the community and and in Parks Canada as a whole.
1: Good stuff. Before I let you go, uh, David, if I could cycle back to the beetle again, is there no natural predator for this beetle, like a woodpecker or something?
2: I would jokingly say, well, we breed a lot of woodpeckers and release them, but of course we don't. Um, (laughs) Woodpeckers in in beetle-killed forests will do very well, of course. There's lots of food for them, but there's no natural predator that actually stands a chance of of controlling an outbreak uh, like this. Um, What has really kept this uh, in check in the past, like I said, has been those cold weather snaps in the winter. Uh, wetter summers are not so good for the for the beetle hot dry summers where trees are in drought conditions and already stressed uh, they're more susceptible to the beetle but yeah there's no natural predator that will actually have a chance of controlling it
1: so really it's a matter of patience as nature takes its course and cycles through this then
2: yeah and like i said our focus is really taking those wildfire concerns seriously we're managing that, that wildfire risk and doing our best to prepare uh, and, and prepare the forest for around the town site to reduce that fire risk um, and things like that. But yeah, really it's a matter of time and waiting. And over the next 10, 15 years, we're going to see those needles come off the trees. The dead trees are going to start falling and the forest is going to come back. It'll be a different forest. It'll look different from what it is now and it'll be a while before it uh, um, regenerates. But it's, it's coming back uh, in places already in BC where this has been through. We can see the understory recovering mm-hmm. already.
1: Interesting stuff. Uh, Dave Argument, Jasper National Park Resource Conservation Manager. Is it argument or argument? It's argument, just like the word. (laughs) There it is. Uh, And I'm gross, just like the word. All right. (laughs) Uh, David, appreciate your time this afternoon. Thanks so much for talking with us.
2: All right. My pleasure. Thank you.
1: Bye-bye. So listen to this, Brad. So we were talking to uh, Dave Argument, the conservation officer in Jasper, about the pine beetle, right? Yep. And I asked him if there was, you know, a natural enemy like a woodpecker, and, uh, you know, he laughed, and rightfully so, because when you introduce species, you create other problems. So listen to this problem. I, I dug through my papers to find it as he was talking. Have you heard about the rabbits in Canmore? I've read about it briefly It is the craziest thing. It's a bit of an issue, eh? It's become a huge issue. So 10 years ago, the town of Canmore believed they had 2,000 feral rabbits, which, by the way, just sounds funny
0: (laughs) just to say that. Welcome to Canmore, home of 2,000 feral rabbits. rabbits. Yeah, and they
1: believed that those rabbits uh, were actually, as a result of former pet owners who had let their rabbits go free, and then the rabbits multiplied (laughs) like rabbits, and then 2,000 rabbits. So, and and I bring it up for two reasons. You know, one, because of the conversation we just had, and two, because whenever uh, a council does anything, it's always kind of funny in hindsight to see what they did about it right like we we like to have fun we poke fun at the city council here in edmonton uh so you know i jump at the opportunity uh to put a spotlight on this so the town of canmore in 2012 started trapping and euthanizing the rabbits so the nice way to say killing them right um and the reason they did that, because, I mean, I live on Rabbit Hill Road, or just off Rabbit Hill Road. I see rabbits all over the place, and, and I'm happy to see them.
0: So you connect deeply with this story.
1: I kind of do, because, <laughs> now those are different rabbits, but still, like, I don't mean they're not, they're a different breed. But anyways, I, I like seeing the rabbits. It's just sort of a nice thing. And I know some residents of Canmore love the rabbits as well. They think it makes it a nice, fluffy, safe, you know, happy place to live. The problem becomes, though, because they're in Canmore, that the rabbits become food for bears and cougars and that kind of thing who then venture into town to hunt the rabbits it's just nature is a really interesting thing right and they're saying that listen you know the cost of putting down a bear or hunting a cougar far exceeds the cost of trapping 2000 rabbits so two problems with their plan uh one is rabbits again breed like rabbits. So they believe they've caught 300 rabbits, but if you take the cost of the program for trapping and euthanizing the rabbits and divide it by the number of rabbits, it was $300 a bunny. (laughs) How how badly would we lose our minds in Edmonton? Oh, man. If they
0: trapped and euthanized any bunnies for $300 a bunny... I want to be at a town meeting in Canmore. (laughs) I do as well. Because the town is, is... apparently split in half. So you yeah. have one side, oh, they eat my tulips, they're ruining my garden, they're bugging my pets, and then somebody else is, well, little Jimmy comes by all the time, and he loves playing with my son and my daughter. They yeah. enjoy him coming by. I'm sure and people just, are feeding them. And just the eruption, though, in that room, <laughs> you know, half the side... You know, committed to ending this rabbit <laughs> infestation. <laughs> and the other half treating them as if it's like a, yeah. a pet, like the squirrel or the chipmunk that comes by in your backyard. That's right. Because Canmore people, for the most part, and I, I've spent
1: m- many hours, days in Canmore, very. Um, Nature-oriented in Canmore, and that's why you know all of the architecture in Canmore is sort of complementary to the nature around them. So I can see why a lot of people be like, "No, I lived, I moved to Canmore to be with nature, not to track it down." And then, and certainly not at three hundred dollars a bunny. Like that's, I don't know
0: what they're using, what kind of technology they're using (laughs) at three hundred dollars a bunny. It's like CSI behind the (laughs) behind closed doors to track them
1: down. Seriously, you listen. I don't want to hurt bunnies, but if I wanted to, you could hire a guy for three hundred dollars a day to go around shooting. Bunnies, oh, yeah. And he'd get more than one a day. Absolutely. Like, it just seems like, you know, maybe they're not doing it the right way. And then the other problem is, it's hard to count the bunnies, right? It's hard to get a number. There's no census for bunnies. So they don't even know that they've reduced the population. <laughs> they just know how many they caught. So they caught 1,300 bunnies. Maybe they're, there's 2,000 more. Well, they don't know. Right. So they're recommending that they continue to hunt the bunnies, because
0: they're just seeing them all over the place. This would be a better story at Easter. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, if you ever look up, I mean, I've fallen down a a rabbit hole before on Wikipedia, where Ah, you you look pun pun. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't even mean to. Where you, I've looked at cities and their populations and and GDPs and Mm -hmm. where they or countries and where how they originated and blah 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 blah. But on the right side, it always says population, and I'm just picturing, you know, Canmore. Rabbit population. Wow. Undetermined. Who knows? Amount killed since 2012, 1,300. Unbelievable. I mentioned
1: uh, before we take a break for your news headlines, a couple of scams that are out there. Uh, This is uh, not so much a well-thought-out scam, but one that uh, a local Edmonton Sports Memorabilia uh, store owner wants you to know about. Um, There's somebody trying to sell autographed McDavid jerseys with a fake certificate of authenticity everyone knows i think these days that when you buy an autograph piece of memorabilia it should come with a certificate of authenticity but what maybe you don't know uh, because you know the argument has been for a long time well if you can fake an autograph you can fake a a certificate of authenticity that's why they came up with a hologram uh system so the certificate of authenticity should have uh, a number which matches a hologram sticker which is on the on the jersey So if those things are not present or if the individual selling you the jersey is not able to produce those things, um, then it's a fake. And just so you know, those certificates, those little stickers, the number or the certificate itself, you can go online and put that number in and it will tell you what piece of memorabilia that certificate or that sticker should be attached to, who signed it, when they signed it and where they signed it. Hmm. So that's another way to... Uh, just verify that you're buying legitimate uh, memorabilia is ask for the certificate number and if he's fake that he's probably not You know unless he's really good. He probably didn't uh, nail the right jersey.
0: You know what the good news is mm. is this is Not happening to anyone who happens to have a signed Eero Pakarinen Jersey <laughs> <laughs> Or Or a, a Laurent Brassois jersey if you yeah. have one of those it's the real deal. <laughs> if you buy
1: one of those, uh, Brassois actually comes to your house and delivers it. <laughs> so that's your authenticity right there. Uh, all right, we'll take a break for uh, news headlines. Uh, in the next hour, we're going to talk to that St. Albert mum whose uh, young boy Caleb lost his tricycle.
0: The 6.30 Chad Afternoon News with Jaylen Nye and Andrew Gross. Weekdays at 2 on 6.30 Chad.